So glad to be here. So glad for the singing. Well done. Uh, what a great musicians you have up here. What a tremendous job they're doing. You will be very thankful for that. Well, let's uh, come to the Lord and just uh, begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Loving Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Father. We are so thankful that we have this day upon which we can reflect upon the cross and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we just come before you now and ask that you would open our hearts to your word and enable us to see him more clearly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just have your Bibles open to Psalm 2, as I'll be referring to the text frequently. During the Ottoman Wars uh, between the Holy Roman Empire and the Turks in uh, the late 1500s, this is about 80 years uh, after the Reformation, a German Lutheran youth was taken east as a prisoner, and he was forced to work as a slave and live among a people who were fanatically dedicated to the Islamic faith. So he grew into manhood while only hearing about their religion, and yet he never abandoned his own Lutheran beliefs. Uh, Jesus Christ was his Savior, and he continued to trust in the Lord who died for his sins. Well, one Easter morning, he had to plow his master's field, and as he walked in the furrows behind the plow, he kept the great resurrection thoughts in mind, and as he did, he found his heart rejoicing in the risen Lord. And spontaneously, he broke out into singing uh, in his mother tongue uh, one of Martin Luther's old Easter hymns, one that is still sung in Lutheran churches today. The words go like this, Jesus Christ today is risen and or death triumphant reigns. He has burst the grave's strong prison, leading sin herself in chains. For our sin, the sinless Savior bear the heavy wrath of God, reconciling us so that favor might be shown us through his blood. In his hands he hath forever Grace and life and sin and death. Christ, his people, can deliver all who come to him in faith. The man was singing a representative of the German government who was stationed in Constantinople, happened to be riding by, and he was amazed to hear a German religious hymn coming from the middle of a field in that particular country. So he got out of his carriage and he went to see the singer. Well, the young man told him his story of being a captive. And then he said, you know, I don't think that I'm ever going to be able to return to the fatherland. And however, I will preserve my Christian faith. And I know that today is Easter. And although I am physically far away from my fellow Christians, I will still celebrate the joyous resurrection and, uh, and have spiritual communion with them instead. Well, this officer of the German government was quite touched by the man's story and by his faith that was expressed in this song of resurrection. So through various political channels, he succeeded in obtaining the man's freedom so that on the next Easter, he did indeed celebrate in the fatherland with his fellow Christians. Now, there's just something about singing songs of faith on a day like this, isn't there? Something that stirs the heart. Uh, that stirs the emotions, 
Um, I mean, what would our worship be like today if our brother just got up and he gave a few announcements and we prayed and had a Bible reading and then we went straight into preaching? Uh, Easter just isn't Easter without music and strong words to sing about the cross and the resurrection. This is not just my opinion. This actually has scriptural precedent behind it. Because there's a whole inspired hymn book that is part of scripture. And we refer to it as the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to express ourselves to God in worship. And although uh, the ancient Jewish melodies that accompanied the Psalms are no longer known to us, we certainly have the words of all 150 Psalms. And one of the predominant themes in those Psalms is the theme of salvation, and especially uh, themes that surround the Messiah. He's kept before the Jewish people in order to intensify their desire for him to come. So he is the theme of many of their songs, many of their prayers, and their worship. Now, with that in mind, you can see almost every doctrine of the Messiah in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 40 is about his incarnation. Psalm 45 focuses on his deity. Psalm 110 is about his priesthood and ascension. Psalm 22, a famous meditation on his humanity and his crucifixion. And Psalm 8 is about his dominion. But I want to look at a psalm that touches on several aspects of the Messiah and especially the themes that bring us together at this time of year on what we call Good Friday. And I'm referring, of course, to Psalm 2. Now, this psalm breaks down into four stanzas with four distinct speakers. You'll notice in verses 1 to 3, you find the rebels who are raging, plotting, taking counsel together against God. Then you have the reply of the Trinity in three separate stanzas. God the Father responds to the rebels in verses 4 and 6. The Messiah himself makes a declaration to the rebels in verses 7 to 9. And then the Holy Spirit counsels the rebels in verses 10 to 12. So we have four stanzas. And woven into them are the themes that highlight the Messiah and his work. So let's look at them together this morning. First of all, we see God and Christ from the rebels' viewpoint. Look at verses 1 to 3 at the raging rebels. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, the word rage here literally refers to a commotion or a tumult. It means that the nations are upset. Uh, They're in a great uproar. And this is God's statement now concerning the nations ever since there have been any nations on the earth. The history of the nations Uh, actually goes back to Genesis 10, where they're listed out as descendants of Noah. But ever since then, they've been in this perpetual rage. And this stanza reveals four things about that rage I'd like to point out. The first is that the rage of the nations is official. 
In other words, it's not scattered. It's not disorganized. But it's sharp and pointed and embedded within the officials and the heads of state. You see that? It's the kings of the earth. It's the rulers taking counsel together. It's a commotion that is officially coming from the leaders of the nations. And secondly, it is conspiratorial. The nations are plotting together. They are in league about this. And what are they counseling one another about? Well, in verse 2, it is counseled against Jehovah God, who is the one true living God, and against his Messiah. They have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. That word translated as to set means they're taking a stand. So they're, they're, they're literally digging in together. They're holding an official position of rebellion against God. Thirdly, it is intentional. Their intent, it says, is to break the bonds of the Lord and his Messiah in pieces and to cast away the cords of the Lord and his Messiah. In other words, they are determined to entirely do away with God's control over them. Now, with that in mind, what are the bonds and the cords? What are those things that confine? They're like being chained up so that you have no personal and national expression of freedom. What are God's bonds and cords on those rebels? Well, it's clear, I think, that these are God's moral and spiritual boundaries. The moral boundaries, of course, have to do with right and wrong behavior. While the spiritual boundaries have to do with what they believe. Well, how have the nations historically looked at God's standards for human behavior and belief? They see them as binding, as unnecessarily restrictive. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 and 2 that the laws of God, are, they're literally engraved in people's consciences. And yet... They are determined to release themselves from even their own conscience so that they can be free thinkers, so that they can live without any restraints at all. Now, this rebellious intent is seen no more clearly than at the scene of the cross, where you have an alliance between Jews and Gentiles and between Pilate and Herod at the trial and execution of Christ. Remember, these rulers were uh, normally at odds with one another, and yet they agree over the execution of the Jewish Messiah. You remember that the Lord is arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taken to uh, the high priest's house where he spends the night in prison. And on the following morning, he is put before Pilate, who quickly finds out that he belongs in Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends him off to Herod. Herod, in turn, mocks the Lord. He tries to question him. He treats him with contempt. And he sends him back to Pilate. And the scripture says that on that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. For previously, they had been enemies. So they're brought together by their common agreement and unwillingness to release Jesus and let him go. And then you see the Jewish religious leaders. They're going to join the alliance. They're going to incite the crowd to crucify the Lord. As the psalm says, they've dug in. 
They've set themselves against the Lord and his Messiah. They're shouting out to crucify him. They may as well have cried out, let us break the divine bonds and the cords of this man's authority over us. And so they resent and refuse the Messiah. And in doing so, they resent and refuse the authority of Jehovah over their lives. Now, this is something that is repeated over and over throughout the history of mankind. In fact, these three verses define what has been happening in the history of the world from the time of the fall. I mean, if the Bible is true, and there's only one God, and the Messiah is God's Son who came to earth, then all false religion is counsel against God and His Messiah, right? And all public policy and legal rulings that give men freedom to violate God's laws. It's all counsel against God and his Messiah. All of it. Many of you will remember the introduction of same-sex marriage legislation in 2017, which led to the change in the Marriage Act of 1961. Massive issue. Had political support, had religious support. Social support, finally public support in a postal vote. It's now law, not just in Australia, but in many other parts of the world. And you remember the language that they used to get it across the line. It was all about marriage equality. It's all about love. I mean, who doesn't want that? But because it is against God's law for marriage, it's conspiratorial. It's intentional counsel against God. And finally, if you look back to verse 1, it's vain. It's futile. All of that official, conspiratorial, intentional counsel against God is futile. Why? Because of the second stanza. Look at it. In verses 4 to 6 now, you have the response or the reaction of the Lord. And notice that he responds from his throne. Verse 4 says, that he sits, he is enthroned in the heavens. So all the nations on the earth are in an uproar. They're raging and everything you read about in the news, everything you hear on the news testifies to the raging of the nations as they try to throw off the moral and the spiritual restraints of God. It's universal mutiny against the God of the heavens and the earth. But as one old preacher used to say, Your arm is too short to box with God. Because all of men's efforts have not dethroned the Lord. I like the way J.B. Phillips puts it. He said, it's the man who has successfully orbited the earth in some hardware in space using material God has supplied and who's put a feeble footprint on the moon as though man can compete with a God who has orbited a hundred million galaxies. As the man who has solved some of the subtleties of the atom and managed to scare himself half to death in the process can compete with a God who stokes the nuclear fires of a billion stars. But the fact that he sits on a throne does not mean now that he is cold and indifferent or that he's even ignoring the rebels because here we actually have his emotional reaction to the sinfulness about humanity. And it may surprise you because it says he laughs. He scoffs. 
He's derisive of those who think they can twist themselves out of his hands. In verse 4, to hold them in derision literally translates to stammer disrespectfully in their face. That's a vivid image for us. It's the picture of God. He's getting in the sinner's face. He's scoffing at them. In verse 5, he speaks in wrath. He distresses them in his deep displeasure. In other words, the whole attempt of mankind to rid themselves of his sovereign control, it's preposterous. It's vain. And again, the supreme example of that is what happened on the cross. In Acts 2.23, when the Apostle Peter spoke to the leaders of that rebellion against the Lord and his Messiah at the cross, he said to them, him, talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. In other words, you thought you won when you nailed him to the cross. But God actually determined that course of action in the ages past. And in his own sovereign way, which we cannot understand, God used their spiteful hatred. He used their trumped up charges as a glorious means of affecting his eternal purposes. So he not only scoffs at their rebellion, he actually uses their rebellion to fulfill his own will. Figure that one out. But the amazing X factor in all of that is that although they rage and although they plot and counsel together in vain, the Lord God is still merciful to them. Because in verse 6, he has a revelation for them. His revelation is actually the last thing that they expect because he reveals that he has set his king. Now, literally, that means he has poured him out. The fascinating word to set because for the vast majority of times that particular word occurs in the Old Testament, it's translated as pouring out. For example, this is the word that's used uh, for the morning and the evening drink offerings that were poured out in sacrifice to the Lord. This is the word that is used by God to convey to these rebels the fact that he has set, he has installed, he has poured out his king. And then the verse goes on to tell people where they're going to find out this event is going to happen geographically. I mean, here's this whole vast globe. There's nearly 200 nations on it today. So if there's only going to be one anointed being who will take care of the sin of the world, where's, where's he going to be? Where's it going to happen? If God were arbitrary, if he were cruel, if he were toying with men, he might never reveal this location. But in his great mercy, he informs them not only of what he has done. He's poured out his Messiah. But also where it's going to take place on my holy hill of Zion. And that's a reference to a certain mountain in Jerusalem. So what comes to mind when you think of the Messiah being poured out as a drink offering on that particular location? Obviously, we think of the crucifixion of God's son in Jerusalem. That is where God offered his only son as a sacrifice for the sins of many. And as we move into the third stanza, the Messiah himself declares the Lord's decree concerning this in verses 7 to 9. 
Verse 7 begins, I, speaking about the Messiah's talking now, I will declare the decree. All right. What has God decreed to the Messiah? Well, I think this is a little glimpse into the councils of eternity past. When God the Father defined and decreed the covenant involving the redemption of man between himself and the Messiah. This is a decree that we would know nothing about if it weren't for passages like this one, which tells us three things related to this decree. In the first place, the Messiah declares the decree that he will be the son of God. That's in verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. So immediately we are introduced to the identity of the Messiah. Then secondly, the decree includes this fact that today I have begotten you. And I'm going to pause on that for just a moment. Because this raises several questions, doesn't it? First of all, does the one true God have a son? Secondly, what day is today referring to? And thirdly, what does it mean that he is begotten? Does that mean that God's son has a birthday when God brought him into being? In other words, is there a day in history when he created his son in the same way God created Adam out of the dust of the ground? And I ask those questions because there are many people who read the Bible and profess to believe that, yes, God does have indeed uh, does indeed have a son, but that he is a son like you and I are sons of God. In other words, he's a created being like you and I. It's a common religious belief. So are they right? You read this passage, it certainly seems to indicate that. But the thing that helps us from falling into that kind of error is that God himself tells us what it means. Isn't that great? Uh, God is his own interpreter. And you'll see that if you look at Acts 13 for a moment. This is a very important passage to understand if you're going to witness to people who believe that Jesus is a created being. So let's have a look at that. In chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is in the synagogue at Antioch. He's talking to Jews, talking to God-fearing Gentiles. You can see that in verse 26. And he tells them about the crucifixion. And in verse 27, I think it's interesting to note that he actually speaks of the rulers who didn't recognize the Messiah. And they didn't recognize what the prophets said about him, even though they fulfilled those prophecies by condemning him. That's in verse 27. In other words, this is exactly the pattern of futile rebellion we, we talked about in verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 2. But then in verse 28 he says, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, there it is again, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. All right, again. Just think of the nations raging against the Lord and against his Messiah. They're calling out, let's cast his cords away. Let's get rid of that. Part of God's response is, okay, I poured out my king on that holy hill of Zion. And then the king speaks and says, okay, I want to declare to you the decree the Lord said to me. Here it is. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. So if the pouring out of the king is a reference to his crucifixion, what does begetting refer to 
in the life of God's Messiah. I mean, this passage says that he was crucified by the religious leaders in a conspiracy with Pilate, fulfilling what the scriptures foretold. I mean, is that the end of him? Is he done? Is he poured out on the ground? He's he's never going to rise again? No way. You look at the next verse. But God raised him from the dead. And in verse 32, and we declare to you the glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written. Well, where is that written? Where do you find that written? What do you know in the second Psalm? Do you mean that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is written in Psalm 2? Sure it is. Where? In these words. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So, what is a begetting? A begetting is a giving of life. It is the bringing to life. When a father has a child, it is begetting. So when did God the Father give life to his dead son in the resurrection from the dead? And on what day did that happen? On the day that we now refer to as Easter. So the decree concerns the identity of the Messiah, God's eternal son. Then it concerns the resurrection of the Messiah after he was poured out on Zion, God's holy mountain. Now, let's go back to the rest of the decree, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, ask of me, speaking of God the Father, and I will give you, I will give the Messiah, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And yet, he's not going to be able to take that possession without violence. Verse 9, you shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the third part of the degree, uh, the decree here involves uh, the universal sovereignty of the Messiah. This is God's solution to the raging of the nations. Now, the simple fact is that the nations are resisting God's solution. They're fighting to prevent it from happening. They don't want the sovereign rule of Christ. That's why, for example, it's becoming increasingly offensive for religious people to connect Easter with the resurrection and to connect Christmas with the Christ. Now, the heathen would prefer not to have the holiday at all or to only emphasize the secular part rather than recognize the one who's being celebrated. That's because the answer that God proposes to the nations is totally unacceptable to lost humanity. But, you know, the day will come when this person will claim his inheritance. He will take control of the nations on the earth and then they will no longer be in an uproar. In fact, at that time, the Bible says that the lion is going to lie down with a lamb. It says children will play at the nest of serpents. It says they will no longer make implements of war. It says there's going to be a universal peace. Because the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. That is God's answer and the only answer to the nation's rage. It's the sovereign rule of the Messiah. Now, having said that, there is a group of people coming out of the nations today as they have been throughout history. Because they do accept God's answer for themselves. In other words, there's really two ways in which the Messiah will gain his inheritance. 
On the one hand, he will call out a people to himself. He's calling them out right now. In fact, he might be calling you out right now by his grace to come to him. But if you refuse to be conquered by his grace in this life, which will be true for the majority of mankind, the day will come when you will be conquered by the rod of iron at his second coming. Either way, all people will one day submit to Christ's authority because he will have the nations as his inheritance. Now, to aid in their submission, we've got one more stanza, one more viewpoint offered in this psalm. Let me read it, verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Now, here, here now is the divine narrator of the Psalms. It really is the Holy Spirit who authored Scripture. And he's giving out advice to the nations. Uh, Literally, he's issuing commands to them on what they need to do with the father's reaction in verses 4 to 6 and the son's declaration in verses 7 to 9. In verse 10, they should respond, first of all, with wisdom. In other words, they should respond intelligently. You know, religion is not the opium of the masses, as Karl Marx once famously wrote. It's not a superstition. It's not for those without any intelligence to get their way through life because they need some kind of a crutch to lean on. No. If these are the facts in this psalm, and they are true facts, my friend, there's only one wise thing to do, and that is to get entirely right with this God and with his son. How do you do that? Well, that will involve the second half of verse 10. They need to be instructed. means they need to become teachable. They need to set aside their arrogance, their obstinacy. They need to receive the teaching of the Messiah. And when they do, they should, verse 11, approach him with fear, great reverence. This means to come and surrender humbly to his authority. They need to yield up their weapons of warfare. They need to recognize that he is the son of God and the sovereign Lord. And as they do, it says they need to rejoice with trembling. Second half of verse 11. That refers to finding contentment, finding true happiness in their awareness and their fear of the Lord. In other words, you recognize who he is and so you tremble. But then you rejoice. Because you're coming to him not as an enemy now, but you're coming to him as a supplicant. And the way to do that is in verse 12. When it says to kiss the son. Interesting phrase that, kiss the son. Uh, the Hebrew really does mean to kiss. <laughs> and there's several other places in the Old Testament where this is really the response that is called for in relation to authority. In 1 Samuel 10.1, when Samuel anoints Israel's first king Saul, it says that he kissed Saul. It's an act of homage. It's an affectionate, submissive homage. So the Holy Spirit's advice is, hey, be submissive. Not as a cowering slave, but as an affectionate subject. Embrace him in worship. That's the idea. So as you can see, these five counsels from the Spirit now follow a progression. It's a progression from rebellion to reconciliation. And if people want hope this Easter... They will be wise in their response to the Lord. 
They will become teachable to the gospel. They will approach him with great reverence. And they will recognize him as their sovereign. And they'll be content with the terms of peace that he offers. And they will submit to him in humble worship. Now let me ask you this. Have you made that progression in your life? If you have, then the conclusion of this psalm is for you. Because the last line is a blessing for all those who put their trust in him. But if you've not progressed from rebellion to reconciliation, it says you will perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. In other words, you don't stand a chance. And either way, the outcome is eternal. It's either the eternal wrath of God for you or the eternal blessings of God for your life. So this morning, as we remember the crucifixion of the Messiah, God is holding out to you terms of peace and not war. He offers you his son who died for your sins. But if you refuse his son on the cross, then he holds out the warning of a coming king who will claim the nations, who will crush all rebellion. So your response right now is to lay down your arms and put your trust in him because today is the day of salvation. And for those who have already trusted in him, let me just add this last admonition in closing. You know what to do with this passage because after the resurrection, what did the Lord say to his disciples? All authority is given to me. Now, you go to the nations where those rulers are raging, where they're fighting, sometimes physically preventing God's people from obeying God's way. You go out there. Now, you disciple them. You indoctrinate them. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice so much at this time of year that we have laid aside as a reflection and a celebration of what you've done. How thankful we are for the sacrifice that was made and then that glorious day of resurrection when you validated everything that you did on the cross by raising your son from the grave. Father, bless us, bless your people today. Give us cause to be thankful and to rejoice in worship. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.